How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. And welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. That was great. That was great. It was a very long and today. Well, you know, I was thinking through um, maybe switching it up, and I was gonna, I was gonna say, "Hey, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show." What do you think? Should I switch it up? I think you should switch it up every time and and any time. Every time. Well, at any time. If you a unique it, opening each and every episode. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. Tom, could you please introduce our guests for tonight? Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight, we have none other than Derek Hull, PhD, and Brian Shore. Derek is a clinical psychologist and has been in the digital mental health space for 15 years in clinical leadership roles at companies like Talkspace and Noom. At Hero Journey Club, Derek is responsible for ensuring the highest quality of mental health support in our program and leads the care team. His research and experience is focused on clinically validating new modalities of care with an emphasis on engaging underserved populations in care and building tools that address provider shortfall and access barriers. Brian Shore is the CEO and co-founder at Hero Journey Club, a collective of therapists, clinicians, designers, researchers, and gamers who are on a mission to make the world kinder by increasing access to mental health. They are building a group-based model of mental health support rooted in connection, belonging, and growth so that anyone is able to become the hero in their own healing journey. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Yes, welcome, gentlemen. It's um, it's such an interesting world that you guys are creating. How did you get into digital mental health? Derek, let me, let me start with you. Sure, great question. So... For me, it started, I, I grew up in like tiny town, rural Arizona, where I'm not sure we had a single therapist in the whole town or within, you know, two hour drive. Uh, but there were many people in the town who struggled with various issues and my own family as well. And we just kind of watched them suffer and cope the best that they could. So I think that planted a really early seed for me. And of course, it wasn't until, of course, when you're a kid, you only care about like video games and catching lizards and things like that. You're not thinking about how to address mental health. So it wasn't until like much, much later that uh, I started getting interested in psychology and clinical work. And I just think that seed continued to grow. And it felt like with the advent of the internet and making therapy more accessible, it could be, I could imagine helping my family members, even though of course they were past that point, um, but wanting to provide that service that I wish that they had had to other folks who could use it so that anyone living anywhere could have access to good care. And so I think that's what really drove, you know, deep down inside uh, my desire to get involved in that industry and try to push it forward. Yeah. And with, with telepsychiatry and telehealth now, it really has, has changed the whole geography, literally, so we can access so many people. And, you know, I've been a proponent of, of telehealth for 15 years, and it wasn't until COVID hit that really people began to recognize its utility. Brian, how about you? How did you get into digital mental health? Yeah, for sure. So I've spent the last decade or so working in product management um, within healthcare and digital health. And so I worked on the first iPhone app in the in the app store for medical use called Hippocrates uh, back in the day for drug decision support. And I've been in the, the digital health space since. And so worked on everything from insurance payer systems to electronic medical records, 
uh, and um, also built an AI company for for cancer analytics. Um, and so, um, you know, that mental health was interesting because it's uh, it's an area that's really near and dear to my heart as well. Southern Dara growing up with a lot of uh, challenges uh, with family who struggle with mental illness. And, uh, and the overlap with gaming is a very personal one because gaming uh, in many ways was, a was an escape for my family and I, as we were coping through stress. And it was a, almost like a babysitter for us as we were kind of growing up. Um, and this really came to a, a head during the pandemic, um, when a, um, a family member of mine was struggling intensely with suicidal ideation. And, um, it was a point of lockdown where he didn't have a job, so he couldn't get the care he needed. Um, and he couldn't, uh, and we, we couldn't get him to a provider in his area. And so, um, and so we did what we could, which is create a family gaming place where we could keep an eye on him and keep him company and talk about some of these issues, uh, you know, keep them uh, excited, uh, just engaged and realized in the process that what he was surfacing was stuff that, you know, all of us were feeling and numbing in our own different ways. And so uh, it really kind of opened my eyes to the the difficulties of, of being access to care um, in, in a time when we've seen the highest rates of of mental health um, incidents that we've ever had before uh, worldwide. And we're also in the midst of one of the worst loneliness epidemics that we've seen uh, ever. And so how do we start thinking about ways that we can increase access to folks who otherwise wouldn't be able to get this care? And so um, fairly new to the world of mental health, but have been in the world of digital for a long time and how to, and building tools that help people humanize the care experience. And, and how did the two of you meet, Ryan? Uh, good question. Um, the easy answer, I asked my my network of folks uh, around who is the best person to validate care models and 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 uh, and take mental health into digital spaces that um, that help us bridge access. And Derek's name came up over and over again as one of the folks who led some of these biggest studies and trials in the space. And when we started talking, I had no idea we could be able to convince him uh, to work with us. I was trying to get his advice on how to think about um, the space. And we're doing something so different and so new uh, at the intersection of so many different areas, um, just trying to see what was possible here and kind of where are the boundaries for what, where we can innovate versus areas where we should just stay put. Uh, it became so clear that Derek is uh, not just a phenomenal clinician and a practitioner, but just also sees the world in such an expansive way with so much creativity um, and uh, and brings so much depth of expertise around how we should support people uh, in this new in these new worlds. Given that you know most of the principles of of CBT, DBT, and and ACTS were developed in the 80s and the 50s before the internet even existed. And so, how do we then now move in this world where entire generations of folks are growing up in these digital ecosystems? And then, how do we then you know bring the best uh, of knowledge that we have and the best people around the table to do that? And uh, um, and it's been an amazing ride since then. And, and just for folks, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. And what was the third one that you mentioned? Uh, accept Did you and commit therapy. One? Act, accept and commit therapy. Okay, great. I, just, you know, for our audience so they understand, because there's so many acronyms these days. But mm -hmm. Derek, what was it like to get that phone call and what intrigued you? Oh, well, it was amazing to meet with Brian the first time as he was describing the idea of taking, as he mentioned, these well-validated methods, but bring them into a space where they're more engaging, they're more fun, they're less intimidating, they feel less clinical. I was sold immediately. Um, I've often been looking for you know, for reasons that I've I mentioned before, but often been looking for like, what are, what are some ways that we can take these powerful tools and things that we know work well in clinical care and make them more accessible, more interesting, um, you know, 
shift the way that we deliver care a little bit. So I'm, I'm always interested in innovative models. And as Brian mentioned, interested in validating those models to make sure that they're responsible and work well for most people and are safe. Um, and as he was describing this, I could just, I could feel my heart and my brain like migrating through my body and meeting in my throat, you know, <laughs> or it's like, wait, you're telling me that all those hours I poured into video games with my dad, like screaming, ah, go play outside. You're supposed to be outside. That's where boys belong. Um, I could, I could like tap into that and maybe do some good in the world. Um, and also be able to do research, which I love to do and work clinically. It was just amazing. Um, so I was totally sold on the concept, but I think, and since Brian made me cry, I'm just going to say a couple things about Brian as important as the concept are the people behind it. And uh, there's lots of folks that start companies and have great ideas, but it's hard to find folks who have a great idea and a great heart and are really passionate about what they're doing and doing it for the right reasons. And I, at, at the end of the first meeting with Brian, I just knew this is somebody I want to spend a lot of time with. This is somebody I want to try to build something with. Um, and the partnership has been nothing but wonderful ever since. Hmm. Okay, Brian, what's it like to hear that? It's it's a lot. I'm working on accepting uh, compliments and positivity, but it means a lot uh, coming from uh, someone as amazing as Derek. And so, appreciate it, Doctor yeah. Joe, doing couples therapy with us. Yeah, yeah. Great. Here we <laughs> are oxytocin <laughs> on the way, on the way. Uh, you know, we, we we've spoken about this, but I don't think Mark still quite knows what it is that we're talking about. So mm. let's um, let's just sort of in a minute or two, just sort of lay the foundation for that. Who wants to start? Yeah, I'm happy to give overview. Uh, that works, and Derek, please jump in. If there's anything I'm missing, um, but um, you know, Hero Dream Club exists so that we can um, both create a world that's kinder um, through through increased access to mental health, and also allow communities to be a starting point for mental health. And so, what does that mean? Um, you know, when we were looking at the world of mental health, I think a lot of what we saw. Uh, was this the stark wave of folks who need support? Like forty percent of people have some kind of diagnosable mental illness. A lot of it's mild, moderate depression, anxiety. We're in the worst mental mental health crisis and loneliness crisis that we've seen uh, of ever uh, worldwide, and it's it's only been getting worse, particularly for folks who are in their teens and their twenties. And so, when we looked at this problem, we try to look at it from a different perspective and say, well, what if? you know, if almost half the people have some kind of diagnosable illness, like, could it be something else outside of us that's making us sick in addition to the biology? And could it be that maybe it's normal and expected to be depressed and anxious when you're living in a society that just devalues our needs as humans to connect and belong. And when most people are spending their time in these new digital environments where they were not made to help us connect, they're made to help us stay engaged and retained. Um, how do we create an infrastructure for connection that allows people to really get access to that support? And at the same time, how can you, how might we take therapy out of the clinic and into the spaces where people already spend time? We know folks spend tens, 20 hours a week um, inside of these, uh, these gigantic ecosystems where they feel more themselves than in real lives, where they have most of their family relationship, their friend relationships, their connections um, in these worlds. And so Hero Journey Club provides uh, mental health support groups inside of games like Animal Crossing, Stardew Valley, uh, Minecraft, and they're facilitated by 
um, we call journey guides who are masters or doctorate level therapists uh, in counseling, marriage, family therapy, social work, um, et cetera. And they're there primarily to make sure that the group stays um, safe, stays moderated and, and teach people skills along the way that they can help with each other. Um, the It's a subscription model. You pay $30 per week uh, for a 90 minute session. That's more affordable than any out-of-pocket copay for even the best insurance plans. And so, and along with our mission to make uh, mental health access more affordable, um, also making it as easy as possible for to engage in the care that they need. This um, is great. Let me just let me just mention that sure. the journey guide model is really a very remarkable model and very powerful. We are fortunate uh, for the Dr. Joe show to have our own journey guides, and those are our sponsors. And so, with that in mind, I want to hear where our sponsors are going to take us. We'll be right back with the Dr. Joe show. Hey folks, thank you for listening to the Dr. Joe show. We've been investigating whether or not we want to bring sponsors into our podcast. What are your thoughts? Do you know somebody who might be a good partner with the Dr. Joe show who may want to align their product or service with the Dr. Joe show? Think about it. And we're back with the Dr. Joe show talking about some amazing innovation. And I want to jump right back into it. Brian, the therapy, the the one-to-one conversations that are being have it, had in these ecosystems, these gaming systems, is is it are they playing together? Are they basically walking the journey together and having a conversation through the virtual game that they're sharing together? Is that the idea? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll walk you through from beginning to end, like how okay. people engage with a program. Um, so most of the, our members are between the ages of 18 to 45, and they mostly play games like Animal Crossing, Stardew Valley, Minecraft, like more cozy core games, the games that you're doing to relax, de-stress. And when they join, uh, we match them to a group of five gamers that are based on their age, their life stage, their identities, um, the mental health challenges they're working on, the games they play. Um, and then they're matched to an anonymous um, Discord server where we have a bunch of these groups um, and they'll meet in these private servers that are um, that are encrypted and like they are anonymous in. And the journey guides uh, meet with them once a week for 90 minutes at a time. It's the same group. It's the same guide. So you build this deep relationship with folks uh, in this uh, in these groups. And the sessions themselves are held in over audio. So you don't have to show up in video. You can be doing whatever you want to be doing. Um, and uh, a lot of folks, we're playing the games together. And so for the first few sessions, um, most of the time, we ask that people play the same games like Paleo or Animal Crossing or Stardew. And we've actually built um, some experiences inside those games for groups wow. that want to engage in them um, that help them deepen that sense of experience. So in Minecraft, there are humongous realms that the community built with us um, around taking grief or anger and then being able to navigate that and kind of like, trigger some of that for discussion. Um, in Animal Crossing, you can decorate these homes that represent your inner child or represent parts of yourself that you don't feel like you can share. And because it's anonymous, you know that you can share openly and uh, as a characters you feel comfortable with. Um, and uh, and you also know that's not as intense because these are a group of five people. You're learning from each other. You can listen and you can wow. develop vocabulary um, around what you need in terms of healing so that um, it feels like uh, like you're just part of a, a larger 
group of people going through similar experiences. And one of our core beliefs is that instead of seeing people as machines or broken parts that need a, a change in serotonin or dopamine, could we see them as humans whose needs are not being met? And one of big need is around social connection and belonging. And how do we anchor every experience in a sense of connection? And so many people tell us we're the kindest place on internet they've come across um, <laughs> because we this feeling that like you're not broken, you're not alone, you're just working your own journey. And so we call it here Journey Club because, you know, like... Um, like uh, every kind of mythology, there are, there's a common thread around the experience. Uh, similarly, you're you're just working through your own journey. You know, you're going through the the challenges, the quests, finding the monsters you need to, and we're here to give you the tools you need by empowering people to feel like they have agency uh, and um, and the ability to manifest the lives they want and become the heroes that they want to be. Um, and uh, and you have a group of people there to support you, and it's all safe and it's anchored in evidence based practices and tools and techniques. Um, even though it's a it's a support group, it's able to to get to places where people have had unlocks that they've never been able to reach before um, because they've worked with, you know, clinicians or other groups that may not understand their, their, their lives and their worldviews. Derek, do you want to add to that? I, you know, the only thing I think I would add is as I think about the way that we structure programs and experiences at Hero Journey Club, I try to keep my eyes on what I like to call the three C's and Brian's done a good job discussing some of these and I'll just mention them quickly. So the first is convenience. So we want to meet people where they are. We want to make it easy. You know, it's, I, of course, I do therapy myself and I think therapy is very, very valuable, but you have to call 15 people. You have to go to your insurance provider. You hear back from, you know, some percentage of them and they tell you they're full. Like it's, it's hard. So we want to make it convenient and meeting on discord where gamers already hang out. It's a great way to do it. And meeting games where gamers already are is a great way to do that. The second C is comfort. So we want individuals to feel comfortable when they come. Many folks don't know what to expect from uh, group support. They maybe have never done it before. It feels scary. Are they going to force me to say my deepest, darkest secrets in front of all kinds of strangers in the very first session? I have no idea what to expect. But folks do know what to expect from a video game. And they certainly know what to expect in playing a multiplayer game. Um, and, uh, and I think that helps to increase the comfort. And then the third C is connection, which Brian already talked about, like connection between a therapist and an individual receiving care is very powerful, but having a connection to other individuals who have been through the same thing that you've been through, who can resonate with your experiences very deeply is also valuable. Um, and I think another way that games facilitate connection, because you might ask like, well, maybe just dispense with the video games. Let's just do group support the way it's always been done, tried and true. But we think that video games, in addition to adding comfort and convenience, also add connection in the sense that like if, if you imagine the folks that you're especially close to, that you really trust, it probably isn't the folks on Facebook that you're having political arguments with. Uh, it's probably not the neighbor that you just wave to in the morning. It's going to be folks who have come and helped you move or have been there when you really needed them or brought you food when you're sick, things like that. Um, and in the game environment, and of course, it's hard to set those things up. You can't make people sick just for the sake of connection. But in a game environment, you can create scenarios where you have to solve puzzles together as a group, or you build something together, or you explore a map together. And this doing things together is comfortable and convenient in a video game, and it helps to build that connection so that then when I am ready to talk about uh, the deeper, more meaningful things, I have that sense of trust and that sense of connection with the other folks in the group. 
And we do find as you watch, you know, groups progress, that the the connection that they have, the trust that they build is so fast, at least in my experience, much faster than you typically see in a in another group setting where it takes a while for folks to get to know each other. Um, those are the things that I would add. So the, the communication, first of all, is the games that you've chosen, are there avatars in the games or you don't see anybody? So it depends on the game, but most of the time um, in these multiplayer games, there are avatars that you're kind of running around as, but you're over audio in Discord. And so you can join on your phone, you can join your Xbox, whatever is most convenient for you. Um, and that's where we share the tools and worksheets and, and materials as well, uh, while such is happening. Um, in some games that are more, um, uh, that are like multiplayer, but still like single experience, like Animal Crossing, for example, like people can share their island codes and they can fly to each other's islands and visit and see things that are there. Um, but we try not to be too prescriptive because I think one of the big takeaways for us is that the games are really just a starting point. It's a way for people to feel comfortable and feel anchored, but they're really here for the mental support and they really stay for the sense of connection, um, as, uh, as Derek mentioned. And so um, the groups, our very first groups, our first three groups from a year over almost two years ago now, uh, almost two years ago, they're still with us today. Uh, they've mm-hmm. they've been with us now and they've they've been consistent. And when you're here with us for for that long, you play a whole range of different games, sometimes individual games, sometimes you're making art, sometimes it's D&D. So it's a lot, it's very flexible uh, over the long tail, but um, but it's a it's a way for people to get into that mode of, of thinking. And they can just do it through their computer, through their phone. Do they do they need a virtual reality set of goggles or anything? Or? Nope. Uh, we, uh, again, our belief is that we meet people where they are. And so when you sign up, you tell us what games you already have and what games you play, and we'll match you to a group that uh, is uh, similarly aligned. And similarly aligned mental fitness and their, and what they're stressing or, or going through or managing or coping. or Exactly. Our groups get really, really specific. Uh, it's interesting. Like people cool. don't, um, I mean, it's, you say like, I have depression and I'm 35, like that doesn't tell you very much, but like yeah. our groups, we have like, uh, men in their like late twenties who are software engineers in the Midwest who like German death metal and skateboarding and Kendrick Lamar, wow. but then also had like issues with school counselors. Like, it's like that specific. Uh, and, That's pretty uh, grand. wow. Um, you could tell a lot about people. Um, and it's, uh, it's not, obviously we're not, that's not, those are not criteria we're selecting for, but there's a beauty in being able to create the sense of cohesiveness that comes from the similarities, like knowing the mental health areas, the games you play, uh, and kind of your general leaning can tell you a lot about, uh, about, about the commonalities that we're all kind of navigating. Hmm. How much power do you see from the peer to peer versus the journey, the, the Sherpa? Yeah, Derek, maybe you have, you have more context here on the, the clinical outcomes. So there's there's a variety of ways of trying to understand impact. So the first and I think most important to us is that we love to hear from the journeyers. And we hear remarkable stories from journeyers because <laughs> they'll say something like, oh, I tried therapy. It wasn't really for me, but this is great. Or they'll say, um, I would like to go to therapy, but it's scary. I'm going to try this instead. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of experiences that are shared. And so we love hearing those from the journeyers. And, and again, like as Brian highlighted, the connection that the journeyers find with other folks, because you, you can have somebody who feels completely isolated in rural 
you know, Oklahoma, let's say, and they find somebody almost like their spirit other, if you want to call it that, you know, in Massachusetts somewhere, they have the exact same interests, they have very similar upbringing and challenges. um, And those connections are just so, so valuable. Uh, And in addition to that, as Brian alluded to, we track clinical outcomes throughout the program. So we get uh, clinical measures a baseline, which I won't go into all the, the clinical measures have terrible, terrible names. So I'll just leave those out for now. But we get clinical measures at baseline so we can get a sense of how folks are doing. What symptoms are they having? What are they struggling with? What are their pain points? So we want to document all of that at the beginning. And then we follow up with them throughout their time in the program to see how well it's working for them. Are they approving? In what way? Um, and the data that we have so far is extremely encouraging. Uh, of course, the researcher in me wants to figure out like what exactly is the mechanism of change? What's the most impactful thing on individuals? Uh, our sense right now is that it's some mix of the peer-to-peer connection that you referred to. Um, and then also that that safe presence of the journey guide who's there to make sure that everything is contained. So one of the things that we have found and believe strongly is that having that journey guide there over say like just peer-to-peer support is a way to just build that trust even more so that they know that no matter what they say, there's someone there who can help guide, direct, and contain that. And that kind of safety is so important for um, for growth and for that ability to connect with each other. Uh, and then, you know, the third mechanism that maybe I would highlight that we're really excited to start working with other research partners and uh, academics with is what role does the game play? So we've already mentioned that it facilitates connection. But there's a lot of interesting research that games help with cognitive functions, with emotional regulation. Um, there's a variety of other benefits that the games may have as well. So there's, you know, this is, I, I don't know how many researchers listen or are listening, but if you're out there, we would love to work with as many smart people as we can. There's just so many interesting questions. Um, and they're, they're just really fun questions to ask. Of course, I think I think all questions in clinical research are fun, but they're even more fun if you can see what impact games are having. Uh, so where our hope is over the next six to 12 months and probably several years after that, that we'll have a very active research program as we try to understand what's working well and for whom. And the goal is twofold, really. One, again, we want to assure folks that uh, the program is effective and will help them meet their goals, which is very important. And I, I feel that individuals that are seeking care should have some sense of what they can expect from that care as they're signing up. And then the second piece is we'd love to make it better. There's a lot of signs so far that it's it's working well for most folks most of the time, but we could always we could always do better. And our hope is that the research will help to inform some ways in which we can have a more engaging and interesting and effective service. I'm curious, what happens when you have a potential danger with one of your your journeyers? Somebody who is exploring things to the extent where they may get dysregulated or they may become suicidal. How do you manage that? It's a great question. And I, I was going to get up and go turn a light on because I'm realizing that I'm, it's almost like I'm a like a member in a horror movie. So I'll, I'll go turn a light on in a second. Okay. Um, but uh, to answer your question, there's there's two ways that we try to manage that. So one is we try to manage it upfront. So when individuals sign up for the service, we gather some information about them just to make sure that a subclinical space is going to be suitable for them. If they have mm. significant 
clinical needs, uh, we I'm sure we can help them at some point and everybody can benefit but from support, but we want to make sure that they get, you know, the appropriate level of care from the beginning. Mm. Um, and by the way, we all, since we talked about problematic gaming, we also do screen for problematic gaming. So if they have challenges with games, that's something that we capture early on and then we'll try to address. Mm. The second way that we handle it is that there are a lot of great resources out there for managing crisis situations. So all of our journey guides are trained on a protocol for how to respond when journeyers are in an imminent crisis situation. Um, and sometimes that includes like pausing the session for a second to make sure that that one journeyer gets the needs that they or to make sure that they get their needs met. And then the journey guide can return to the session and continue with the other journeyers. Mm. Um, and we, we maintain a resource list, a pretty extensive resource list on our discord channel so that all journeyers can know exactly where to go and who to call if they need immediate imminent help. Um, and then of course we have documentation and other things for that as well. But Unlike in a clinical space where you might lean in on a crisis and evaluate it and do safety planning and all of that, because we're subclinical, we we identify it, but we then pass those cases to crisis support resources and then also try to help them get connected to care in their location. Mm, that's great. Yeah, it makes sense. And and I assume that the journeyer sort of has signed off on that beforehand, that, that there isn't a HIPAA violation that, that you're allowed to, to say something to someone. Correct. Yep, exactly. Um, and also in the signup, even though uh, even though individuals are sort of pseudonymous, as we say on Discord, um, we do have information for them and emergency contact. So if they were to say be in crisis and then disappear, we can call someone close to them just to make sure that they're okay. Yeah. It's very Absolutely. rare, though, I should say. very. It's very rare that we have crises on the service. Are you utilizing the the um, innovations of AI to kind of monitor what's going on at all and and either utilizing the data for, for research or for crisis like we're talking about to say, okay, we need to uh, mm -hmm. jump in this journey. Uh, this journey guide is, is losing control of the group or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way we approach it, I mean, one of the, the core tenets of program is just trust right and so we have to make sure that everybody knows we're very transparent about what information we collect what data we use uh and uh and so we have not been using the data for anything like that for ai in particular because of um just there's a lot of new innovations coming in play and mostly how we think about technology is how do we deepen the human experience and so of course all our technology and all the data is secured is encrypted um it's protected um but that's about the extent of it um and we focus more on just training the journey guides to make sure that um or rather finding journey guides who are trained in uh in crisis management and and uh and support um and then uh and then giving them the tools to manage it so we do have commands and bots that we built in discord for example that could isolate someone in a moment of crisis and then route them to the right supports and so that's how more we think about it um and the rest of it is just more anecdotal uh we, we collect we, again we collect all this in the onboarding process but um that information has been more than rich enough to get really good matches do you find so so there's a there's another organization that i hear advertised on podcasts all the time my better health it's the it's telehealth it's giving people access kind of an airbnb for therapists not nearly as uh niche and specialized as what you're doing I was interested. I go online in the onboarding process. Do, you, do are you able to track how many people start an onboarding and then fall off? 
uh, we do. And we're proud that uh, I think on average across all of our members who onboard, it takes them about 13 minutes to get through the whole thing. And it's actually, we're working on some changes now to make it even shorter. And so we make it as simple as possible for people to get in uh, while also gaining the context that we need to make sure that they're safe and and that they, uh, they get the right support. And so um, we, yeah, we try to streamline that as much as possible. It's really cool. I'm I'm yeah. really excited for what you all are doing. Yeah, me too. And 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 you you said earlier, Derek, that you had some baseline sort of um, measurement, if you will, on on our on your folks. Do you ever use the McGill, the Quality of Life scale? You know, are you familiar with that one? I am. Yep, I am. We aren't using the McGill, so if. We can talk turkey for a little bit, Dr. Joe. So the, yeah. the measures that we're using are the PHQ-9 for depression, the patient health questionnaire. Um, we're also using the Generalized Anxiety Disorder 7 or the GAD-7. Yeah. Um, we're using the World Health Organization's five-item well-being scale, which is, it's not the same as the McGill, but it's kind of mm. moving in that direction. Um, and, and the reason that we use it is that it's shorter yeah. uh, and you know, when you're, when you're asking people to tell you how they're doing, not everybody wants to do it all the time. So you want to keep it brief. Um, so those are the three that we primarily look at. Mm. That's great. And, and you've been tracking, you get data, what, every six months, every three months, do you do a, a follow-up? Yeah, we send out a follow-up monthly. So we get a baseline wow. and then once a month for as long as they'll respond. Wow. What are you finding? Um, well, so far, what we're finding is extremely encouraging. Um, when you know, when we first started, it's it's always hard to tell what kind of impact. You know, it's it's a support group, and it wasn't clear exactly how it would unfold. Um, but what we're finding so far is that sixty percent of individuals uh, give data or give responses that suggest that they're achieving what's called clinically significant change, which you're probably familiar with. So mm -hmm. what, what that means essentially for Mark and Tom is on these measures, if you start above a certain threshold and then you improve at least five points or more and then end below the clinical threshold, that's called clinically significant change. And the reason it's labeled that is because if, if somebody's measures only improve by a point or two, that's not necessarily meaningful. They're still probably depressed. Um, but if you if you achieve clinically significant change, then you've gone from would likely meet criteria for depression to would likely not meet criteria for depression anymore. So in other words, you're better. This may be a better way to put it. Um, so to see to see sixty percent of individuals reporting that in about an eight week eight to twelve week period is um, remarkable, which is why I may be a little tight lipped about it because I want to get more data and like continue. Sure, to track sure. It. Um, well, you, can, you can come back. You can come back when you got the data. But go there ahead. you go. Yeah, have us have us back in six months, and we'll talk. We'll talk about our first paper, which we're actively writing right now. Um, right. But uh, but the results so far are just very encouraging. So we're excited. And, and, and my other, my other. Okay. Go ahead, Brian. If I may just drop in another thing too, that's been interesting just as a, as a tidbit there is that like, just, you know, aside from the actual measures themselves, we see three times higher uh, retention than industry average, which is uh, quite surprising for, you know, just the, the program that, um, that we thought would be, you know, a few weeks long, people stay uh, over seven months, right, across cohorts, which has been so wild because they see so much value and it's helping to them. Uh, and in addition, you know, 70% of our members come from marginalized communities, like communities of color, people in rural areas, 
um, like neurodivergent folks, queer folks, people who traditionally have been the most severe uh, in terms of states uh, coming in uh, and have not had representation in our mental health system and haven't had a voice there. And so not only are we um, getting folks who are uh, who have not been represented, but they're uh, and have not been um, have, have traditionally been more acute. Um, they're also now doing better, like Derek as Derek described on the outcomes, uh, like early sample size um, and all the caveats therein. But uh, on par with what you expect to see for gold standard uh, mental health support, uh, and it's so surprising when you start with the human side of this. It makes the rest of it so much easier to navigate. Yeah, no, it's, it's, again, it's such a great idea and so timely, you know, because so many people are gaming and they, I, I mean, we started off talking about the isolation epidemic that we have in the world. And yeah, you know, I think there's a, there's a, a global cortisol response, a global stress response right. that leads to cortisol, as you know, blocks dopamine, which is the neurohormone of pleasure, very difficult to feel pleasure under that stress. And cortisol blocks oxytocin, you know, not, not oxycontin, oxytocin, the neurohormone of trust and happiness. Very difficult to feel trust under stress. So that community that you're creating for these folks is so, so powerful. And I was curious about, and then I, and I'll let you go. You guys have been really great, but you know, you're not using, you know, war games or conflict games. How do you select the games that you have in your journey? It's a great question. Um, you know, it's, it's, we, we let the community tell us actually. And so, you know, we started with primarily cozy core games, uh, games that, um, that allow people to, that people usually use to de-stress and to, to exercise their creativity. So Minecraft is really popular because you get to build, it's peaceful. You can go make stuff, um, Stardew Valley, Animal Crossing, great. Cause you're just farming, you're building a, a, a farm together. You get to show off all the fun little things. Um, and, um, you know, Disney Dreamlight Valley, Paleo, there's so many of these have come up recently, um, and then, uh, but that being said, there are a bunch of other games too, that people use in such interesting ways, like Red Dead Redemption, um, which is a, a more gritty game. People will meet just sporadically in these train cars in like a cutscene, and just hang out in these train cars. It's, it's not even intended to be a thing you do in the game, but people just do it anyway to connect. And, uh, wow. so meet them there too, because we're like, well, our therapists are gamers. And so we know, we know the tricks, we know the hideouts and we'll go there too, hang out. Um, and um, and uh, there are some people who actually play really intense games like the Elden Ring series or the Soulborn series that are like really, really, um, you cries a lot of focus and a lot of skill and people find that actually because of that flow state they get into, they can actually pay more attention to the session. And so they're listening and in their, that, that dopaminergic state, they're able to kind of do a little bit more reprogramming underneath the hood, uh, in a way that is, feels more calming, uh, particularly folks who are neurodivergent, like folks who are, have ADHD or autism, they, a lot of them say like, it's just, it actually feel more engaged because of that. Yeah. Those games, I feel in a weird, a weird way, I feel respected playing them. Like Elden mm. Ring is a game that uh, does not f around. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. <laughs> it is tough no. but fair. Yeah, I mean yeah, what, that sounds like a paper, Derek. I mean, you know what what Brian is talking about that that would be a really powerful paper. Not that the other interesting. One, yeah, yeah, I just I was just going to mention one other thing because you'll you'll love this. There's another form of game that we're seeing people play, which are horror games. <laughs> which are too scary to play alone, but they love to get like, what are they? There's like phasmophobia and phantasmagoria and like some of these, they have all these, they all, always start with pH for some reason. There's probably a paper in that too. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, it's just interesting that they get together to feel fear together. Um, well, it's just well, such an interesting age. There you go. They should, they should. Um, so that's been an interesting thing too. I thought you would find that. That's, it's, I mean, we don't do that a lot. That's not the mo- majority of sessions, but that it's happening at all, I think is a really, I mean, what a fascinating way to get people together to feel something and then work yeah. on regulating what you're feeling together, uh, especially yeah, for mean, folks who have attachment trauma or whatever, where they don't know what it's like to have co-regulation of their feelings. Uh, it's just kind of a fascinating thing that we didn't, we didn't design it that way. It just sort of happens. Kind of interesting. It is very interesting. I mean, again, the, the, the potential is amazing. And, you know, with all the folks that sign up, you're going to find more and more of these gems of, of treatment and intervention. It's fantastic. It's great. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's in that, that research for that engagement that uh, there's so much to mine in there. Not, not, not to talk about Minecraft, but, but we, we also have people who are engaged with us who absolutely remind us of our value every day, which, which I think is one of the most fundamental things that all human beings want is just to feel valued. And it is our sponsors who truly make us feel valuable. So with that in mind, we'll take a break. We'll be right back with the Dr. Joe Show with Derek Hull and Brian Chor. Hey, folks, welcome back. So any thoughts? Do you listen to other podcasts? Do you see how they do the sponsors? Is there a way that they're utilizing sponsors that you enjoy or you don't enjoy? I listen to Smartless, and I really enjoy how the co-hosts share the voiceover for the product or service. It's really funny for the most part, but it's unique. It's them really endorsing. Does that work? What do you think? And we're back with the Dr. Joe Show, talking with the future, the innovators, Brian and Derek, talking from the perspective of the Hero Journey Club, an amazing, amazing transformation in in uh, care for mental health, and and we're talking about how they're implementing it through the gaming, and uh, I'm I'm blown away. Um, I, if you could see us here on Zoom or where we're doing this, you'd see my jaws dropping on the on the desk as we continue to talk through this. But I have a question for Brian and Derek, and that is, you know, one of the topics that comes up on the Dr. Joe show a lot, as you can imagine, is we have a lot of mental health um, professionals that come on and talk about various um, situations. And, and it, it seems like there's this continuous uh, conversation around the lack of, of therapists, the lack of access to therapy you talk about these the, the journey, journey guides. guides thank journey you dr guide. joe what is the minimum standards required to become a journey guide to to help right to sharp and, and and probably help themselves as well right at the at the end of the day these journey guys are probably sharpening this on and getting to know themselves a lot better as well as they're as they're guiding others through a journey but how? But one one of the things, and I'm I want to just continue on this because it's been kind of a soapbox. And you know, we talk about medical school and residencies and all of this barrier to entry. I just want to help. I don't want to go to 17 years of school. I, I simply want to help. How how can how can we do that? Eric, so, you want to pick this up? Yeah. Um, So we do have the minimum standards that we have for journey guides is we are definitely looking for individuals who have clinical training, at least a master's degree in a clinical field, which thankfully, and all the therapists listening will know this, doesn't require 17 years. (laughs) Um, 
Uh, although we'd, we'd love to, if Dr. Joe wants to come and be a journey guide, we'll figure it out. So we'd love to have somebody with his experience too. Uh, but a master's degree is a minimum. We do have some doctoral level folks as well that apply and are journey guides. Um, we do a resume review to ensure that they have the training they need. So that's that's criterion number one. Criterion number two, and this probably isn't on most job applications, but we're interested in people who are geeky, who like games, who are into that kind of culture, who are going to understand and resonate with our journeyers. Um, it's a really important feature in their success at being a journey guide, um, which then leads into the other thing that you were referring to, uh, Mark, around the lack of therapists. Of course, we see a lot of clinician burnout as well. It's a big issue, especially post-COVID. And we're interested in finding clinicians who are looking for a different way to practice, who want to expand their creativity a little bit and tap into, you know, as I mentioned before, my my own gaming past, so they can tap into their own gaming past as they're helping other individuals um, and help to lead these sessions that don't feel quite as heavy or burdensome as other clinical positions maybe that they've had. And we have a lot of journey guides that join us that are looking for precisely that, a way to connect with their gaming, a way to bring a little bit more of themselves to the session as well, because they're, they're going to have the same interests. They played the same games, they watch the same shows, and many of our journey guides find that to be very gratifying. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention is that uh, when we do receive applications, assuming they meet those two criteria, that they have the training that we require and uh, an interest in the way that we work and in gaming, we have a hiring process that gives them an opportunity to sort of practice leading a session so they can see what it's like, what it's like to work in our environment. We can see how they do in our environment so that by the end, we know we have a great fit and that the journey guides can serve our, our journey as well. So that's a, a quick sketch of the process. When, is there a typical time frame when people meet? I mean, I, I would imagine maybe it's after work hours or like Most folks, yeah, most folks definitely want to meet like evenings and weekends are where you yeah. see the most of the interest. Um, but that said, we have groups that start in the morning. So some folks want to like do the group and then go to work, um, which I admire. I'm not an early bird in that way. So I would want to do it at night. <laughs> Uh, so lots of folks, evenings, weekends, um, after work is typically the time. We we even have some journeyers who would love to meet like after midnight. Uh, we try to encourage, you know, healthy sleep because that's an important part of uh, the, you know, the biological side, as Dr. Joe would remind us. Um, and the, it's tied to the mental. So we try not to go too late, but uh, but we work hard to have enough openings that journeyers can fit it into their schedule. And you manage the the time zone differences in some way as well, right? We do, yeah. So when we get the schedule from the journeyer, we we ensure that it'll line up with journey guide availability and, and then other journeyers. And I, I also don't know if, if folks are wondering, but these journey groups are consistent from week to week, you know, so that relationship is built. Uh, so we want to ensure up front that the scheduling is something that they could do weekly and uh, not have too much interference with. And, and do you find that some of the journeyers do skip or jump around from one group to another, or are they pretty much, you know, curated into one group like you like you describe? So they're pretty much curated into one group and form their bonds there. Uh, however, there are you know 
no no match is perfect and we know from lots of research on clinical work that 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 connection or that match between you and your therapist or or you and the individuals that you're journeying with is so important um in in addition to the techniques and evidence-based approaches which are also very important you want that human connection it's critical and so if there's a match that just isn't working for a journeyer, we try very hard to help them find another group where it feels a little bit better, where they feel more at home and can feel more comfortable. So we do move folks around from time to time. So how, how do people find you? How do they get started? Brian? Yeah, the easiest way to find us is on our website, um, www.herojourneyclub.com. Um, and you can learn more about our program there. There's an example, there's a example session on there. So you can see what it's like to be in a session uh, and while it's happening and kind of hear what it's like. Um, you can hear, see testimonies from members. Our journeyers have been so incredibly supportive of uh, the experience. And so you can go and see if, and listen to them directly, kind of what they feel and, and say about the program. Um, and then if it's a good fit, you sign up on our website. Um, you, right now, over the holidays, because the holidays are a really tricky time for mental health and people needing support, um, we have a, a special promotion where we're already trying to make it as affordable as possible at $30 um for a 90 minute session but now the first month if you join now uh the first month is actually half off and so uh for folks who are just curious and want to try it out um we are here to support whoever uh, is interested there's no strings attached you cancel anytime you want uh and uh and um um and if there are any questions they can also just email us as well and, and it's pretty much one session a week or more than that or you that's right. It's one session a week. It's the same group that you meet with each week, uh, but we are experimenting with a few other event types uh, as well that will happen uh, throughout the week. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, people have been pretty happy with that. I am curious, you know, having done group therapy and individual therapy, even through Zoom, sometimes that personal in-person connection also has meaning. Derek, how how do you guys manage that? Because you, you said, you know, some people are scared to do therapy and this is a more convenient and maybe more a safer way because of the anonymity in some ways. Mm -hmm. I, it's a great question. And I, I mean, there's a lot that could be said about it, but I think the thought that comes to me first is that I, I agree with you. There's just something about the synchrony of being together that's so powerful. Uh, and I might suggest that one of the things that games provides is that kind of virtual synchrony. Now, mm. is, is it exactly the same as going to your therapist's office and sitting with them? No, it is different. But you do have a shared world and a shared environment that allows for that kind of synchrony to take place uh, that can be important in building that connection over, say, you know, as you suggested, like a Zoom or or some other way of connecting with individuals. Um, and I think it's an interesting avenue to explore, and, and we will continue to explore in what ways does the video game serve as a kind of um, compensatory mechanism or, or a, a way to facilitate that connection or that synchrony that you have when you're when you're live? Because you may not, you know, you may not see the other person scratch their face or fold their arms or do those kinds of nonverbals, but you will see them moving around in the game world, and you can. You know, if you play these games, you can tell that folks are thinking about something. Are they going to take this action, not take that action? How could I help? Um, so the hope is mm -hmm. that that unfolds in the game environment to some degree. So, so there is that ability to 
anticipate what somebody else will do, which is, you know, looking more at theory of mind and prefrontal cortex and wondering what's going on with that avatar, even though we're in the group therapy. Is it, am I missing something here? Or? I think that's nicely said. You know, the only other thing I would add, um, and I think this is an interesting aspect of meeting in person as well for therapy, is that sense of commitment right? I've committed to get in the car, drive to you, meet with you and drive home. And I I think that's an important element Um, that again, I would suggest we get in the game environment because now we're committed to helping build things together or undertake projects. And we we both have to show up. I can't do it alone. You have to be there to do it with me. Um, And so I wonder, we don't know, you know, we're just speculating at this point, but something to research. But I suspect that that sense of commitment you get at least some percentage of that, some piece of that in the virtual environment, even if you're not meeting in person. Yeah, and what we're finding with telehealth is, you know, we used to have sometimes 30% no-show rate for people mm. who made a commitment but but wouldn't show up for any number of reasons. That's about 3% with telehealth. I mean, it's mm. so much more convenient. I think mm. it's so much more respectful of someone's time, um, mm. despite, you know, the p- potential for in-person, but I have no problem with with this as a modality. I think it's really powerful. And I do think it's that convenient, that, you know, the, the comfort, the convenience, and then the connection, as you say. Meet them where they're at, Yeah. right? Brian one said thing, it. And... Brian, I'm sorry. Something to say. Yeah. yeah, and one thing to add there, Dr. Joe, I think, um, you know, in addition to the, the comfort piece of it, just one thing I want to uh, highlight as well, um, that particularly with folks that we've seen under you know the age of 30 or so, many of them who grew up in these digital first worlds, a lot of these games and a lot of their relationships actually are built in these digital worlds primarily. And so if you ask a lot of our members, they'll tell you that all their best friends are people they've never actually met in person before. Like they met while gaming, you know, connecting and a lot of their stresses and the, the interpersonal dynamics that they want to work through are with people in Discord who are just usernames or people who uh, were in a, a, a lobby together in Call of Duty or something like that. Uh, and so one of the unique challenges is that um, the definition of, of connection and, and authenticity is is being quite drastically different, uh, I think, for folks in these in these spaces. And like you know, even my cousins, like two of them got married and their best man, they met for the first time at their wedding uh, because wow. they're giving buddies, right? And there's just a different world um, now. And so uh, in many ways, you're showing up in the place where they are most authentic and most able to connect. Wait, wait, wait. Ryan, is there? Did a, I hear there... what you just? Did I hear that correctly? That the first time they met in person was at their wedding. Yep, that's right. That's best man. Yeah, uh, and their partners, their their wives, they also met in the games too. <laughs> that's fantastic. Go ahead, Mark. Cut you off. Is there a plan in the future to create a game to to participate in this? That's a great question. We spent a lot of time on this uh, and it's certainly an area where there's a lot of fun. Like we, we, we've kind of dabbled into, for example, taking the principles of, of cognitive behavioral therapy and adapting like video game characters around them, like RPG characters. And so, you know, at the very least, like as people go through their program, could you level up on skills, like instead of like speed or strength, you work on emotional regulation or groundedness. So, so these are ideas we played around with um, that we think about in the future. But the reality is that game developers and game publishers are so good at this. Like right. they're so amazing at building engaging experiences, and um, you know, covering uh, your broccoli with chocolate isn't you know, always the most palatable thing uh, in the world. And so we we let them do what they're great at, and instead we partner with them. And so we have a lot yeah. of. Ex- interesting partnerships with studios who want to work with us and we bring the mental health and the caring and the community. Uh, and then we can 
figure out with them what was the best um, way to deliver that kind of support. Um, and so for right now, not no no plans to make a game, but we certainly try our best to, to dabble in Intermix. And, 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 and it's how, that partnership, that comfort, that convenience, and and the connection. This is what we experience on a weekly basis with our sponsors. And so I am just so delighted to have them on our team as our Sherpers. Let's hear from them. We'll take a commercial break. We'll be right back with the Dr. Joe Show. Hey, welcome back. And again, we're super grateful for you listening to the Dr. Joe Show. If you have anyone that you think might be a good sponsor, shoot us an email at drjoepodcast at gmail.com. D-R-J-O-E podcast at gmail.com. Give us your thoughts about the show too. We're wondering, are we talking to the trees or are people really gaining value in this? Please let us know. Thank you again and enjoy the rest of the show. And we're back with the Dr. Joe show. Talking about the hero journey. Stop what you're doing right now. Pause, go to your computer and Google it up. Hero Journey Club. It's really, really fascinating. We're talking to two of the the leaders of this uh, innovation, if you will. But when we were talking off air, one of the questions that I had spinning around in in my skull was uh, the partnerships that you have with these gaming companies. I asked if there was an idea around maybe potentially creating a game and what, you know, of course, let the experts do it. So we're going to work collaboratively with them. But my question was a little bit uh, different and darker. And that was, um, you know, when talking with these companies and their leadership, do they feel any level of responsibility around some of these mental fitness issues, these mental health Mm -hmm situations because they've they've almost created this this environment to be isolated it's a it's a great question and it's something that we've talked a lot about actually uh with our partners and um even at the the games for change conference that focuses on social good and education and gaming you know it's a theme that comes up like does mental health does gaming lead to mental illness does it cause this to be exacerbated and the literature and and derek can speak more to this is emphatically no like um people go to video games as a way to de-stress as a way for them to uh to find a way to cope um and all the studies that um, that like, draw, drew a, a linkage between like increased violence and shooting games um, were um, to shown to be actually not effectual um, in, a, in a recent Stanford study that was just published a few months ago. And so I think what we see is actually, um, you know, these games in many ways are a a way for people to in many ways, manifest the lives that they wish they could have. Um, in many ways, uh, kind of have a sense of agency and control um, in in various situations that otherwise feel a bit daunting in the real world. And so, um, and so, it's hard to um, to fault these the game companies for providing a sense of refuge for many folks in that way, right? Um, but the reality is that there are a lot of people in these spaces who do need mental health support. And so, a lot of them recognize these challenges. And even more recently, with the you know the the lawsuits with like Instagram and, and Meta around creating these tools that are engaging people in unhealthy ways. I think a lot of the game studios or partnerships that we've been talking to um, acknowledge that, you know, while they were they exist to provide entertainment and engagement, there are many things that we could do that also can help people um, do well and do better at the same time. And so uh, in some ways, these these potential partnerships are exciting ways that we can um, we can start getting ahead of some of these challenges. But, but, uh, but to date, you know, Derek, probably more context here, 
um, you know, the, the games themselves are just tools. Like they're just uh, avenues for engagement and for people to, to find uh, entertainment. And for some, it becomes escape. Uh, and uh, just like any other tool, any other kind of uh, pastime, you can do it in a way that's healthy and you can do it in a way that's not. And so we are here to help create the avenues by which uh, it can be a healthy way to, to support oneself. Yeah, the only thing I would add is that the what the research has shown is that the causality is flipped from what we typically expect. Because I think what we expected was because th there's certainly some sensational examples of problematic gaming. You know, people who play nonstop for 48 hours or something and then have significant ill effects. Um, but what the research suggests is that individuals who are already struggling, who are already in pain, tend to be the ones that struggle with gaming. So in other words, it's the, the mental health comes first and then the problematic gaming comes second, as opposed to the gaming coming first and then the, you know, mental health challenges coming second, which is another reason to be excited, I think, about what we're trying to do at Hero Journey Club, which is to address the mental health needs. And our sense is that if we can address the mental health needs, then the risk of problematic gaming is also going to go down. And, and, and if anything, they'll be able to have a healthier relationship to the games that they play and enjoy them more. Um, and I think as we talk to partners, that's a conversation that we're having with them. And, and the thing that we're hearing from them as well is that there are large communities that are built around these very popular games. And they can see even within those communities that there's a certain percentage who struggle. And they're interested in how do we provide mental health support to these individuals, not from a sense of we cause the mental health challenge, but you know, statistically, individuals who are interested in games, just like individuals who are interested in anything, are going to have some kind of mental health challenge. And how do we get them support? And so the conversations with them, I think, and and Brian, you know, has the same experience, I believe, um, are really encouraging. Like they they do feel a sense of responsibility, not that we cause the problem, we need to fix it, but that we have such large communities, we're seeing problems almost from a kind of public health perspective. Um, and how can we, how can we provide support to our community? That's usually the conversation that we have. That's a lot of sense. And, and Dr. Joe, with respect to a lot of the addiction um, folks that you work with, it's the same thing. It's the mental leading. Um, yeah, for the, for the most part, certainly the mental health component precedes the the first time substance use. Uh, I mean, we are we are managing now screen time addiction as well, but I think that mm -hmm. we can save that discussion for later because with the IM approach, as you know, we, the IM is saying we're always doing the best we can uh, with the potential to change in the very next second to another best we can. But there are four domains, your home domain, your social domain, these are external, and then the two internal domains, the biological domain and the IC domain. How do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? These are the four domains that influence our I am and to which we respond. Because the domains interact, a small change can have a big effect. You don't need to change everything. So let me ask you first, Brian, given what we're talking about, what small change can you recommend to our listeners? Then I'll ask you, Derek. Hmm. You know, I think one of the things I think about as a as a designer is that uh, we have a saying in design is like there there are no um, dumb users, just dumb products, right? Just dumb experiences. Um, and I think about when I'm um, when I think about this kind of the challenges that um, come up with um, with our interactions, almost like 
if you think about our reaction to certain situations, a lot of times you just have to design systems around yourself that allow you to break away from the intensity of that. And so um, taking uh, the focus away from you and what's wrong with you and more it's just around, well, what can I do in this moment to what kind of, what uh, action move do I, do I do to kind of get me out of it? And so for some people, um, it could be just taking a walk, like you're feeling really stressed. Like maybe just the the first, like, you know, like a move you do is to go and just do a quick like loop around the block. Um, and then for folks who are kind of more further along in this process, as you're thinking through, you know, various challenges that come up and these thoughts, um, there are frameworks like Katie, like Byron Katie's, the work, the four questions you can ask yourself, like this thought has come up, like, is it true? Do I absolutely know it's true? Um, you know, what change would happen if, uh, if I didn't believe that and then who would I be without this belief? And like, so there are different algorithms or kind of like, um, you're playing a game and you do a, a special, a special move. You can, in the same way, think about these challenges that come up and say, like, it's just your way of executing. So the small change I'd recommend is like, maybe pick one or two of these things that work for you. And just in the moment, you're feeling the intense overwhelm. Just give yourself at least the grace to do the move and just don't be so hard on yourself in that moment. Just and see if there's if there's something that can take you out of that state. So the small change is actually make that small change. Exactly. And, and formalize it, you know, as a, yeah. as a move. That's great. Derek, what, what would you like to add to this? Yeah, it's it's such a fun question. Um, I admit I've been thinking about it a bit. And the thing that comes to mind for me is the thing that I struggle with. And I think, you know, we, whenever we make suggestions of people, it's usually coming from a place of things that we're trying to work on, or at least that's how I am. Um, and I think the thing that I've been thinking about more is changing the way that I view time. Mm -hmm. I tend to view time as like an enemy that you have to do battle with and defeat, you know, like, how do I, how do I manage my schedule? How do I conquer the way I use time? Like we, we use these like war metaphors. Um, and what I find is more helpful instead is to try to focus, uh, you know, as a small change, like just shift a little bit of focus from time to energy. Like, how do I manage my energy instead of my time? Um, you know, I, this is maybe getting a little too far afield, but I'll try to wrap this up. Um, but it, it makes me think about like, we go to school from fall through spring because in the 1800s, you needed the summers off to farm, right? But we still go to school in the fall and spring, even though maybe that's not the best way to use that time now that most of us don't farm anymore. Um, and I think something very similar plays out in our daily schedules too, where most Americans used to work in factories and you did a nine to five and you did your factory work and you went home and relaxed. Um, and so we, we have these notions of time that we have to like cram stuff into every second, but if we allowed ourselves, you know, especially now that knowledge work is changing and the way we work tends to change, but if we allowed ourselves to have one hour full of an energizing insight, that will create more joy and more value for us, I think, than trying to cram every second full of stuff. Um, and I think it's better to feel inspired or to feel like you're learning, to feel like you're growing than to feel busy. You know, that need to feel busy feels like a, a layover from you know, a past time and maybe something that we could let go. That's a great small change to really just take that moment for yourself too and to reflect instead of just react. That's great. The second truth of the I am, um, everyone's got one and you are part of someone's home or social domain. And you know that what you do how you see someone is going to have an effect on their biological domain because you know it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected and what this means the second truth you control no one you influence everyone you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be 
Brian, creator of this, what kind of influence do you want to be? Yeah, I, this one goes back to something I learned from my grandmother. Um, she was a, she's a refugee from the Cambodian genocide. And I was always so struck by how like optimistic and kind she always was in every single interaction. People loved her. She didn't, didn't speak English, but like her nursing home went, they like all the nurses, all the, the folks loved her because she was just beaming with smiles the entire time. And she told me uh, once um, that you know, people are, are pretty simple, actually. You love them first and then they'll love you back. And so, uh, and influence, if you can just in every interaction and every opportunity, try to bring as much kindness and mutual positive regard as you can to that situation and do your best to love them and love yourself in that situation. Um, and the rest of it ends up being much easier. Uh, you find that like, uh, just start with that place and be the first one to extend that olive branch and the, um, the, the kindness. And, uh, I found that that, that comes back many fold over. Yeah. And, and that fits also with the, I am every time you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. Hmm. You know? Dr. Derek Hull, you control no one, you influence everyone. What kind of influence do you want to be? Yeah. You know, before I answer, I just want to say real quick that what Brian just shared are not just words. Like I've experienced that from him. So it's mm. not just a motto that he like brings out in public to impress people. Like he really is that way. So I just want to mention that real quick. I think it's nice when people want to be an influence in a certain way and actually are that way. Yeah, it's um, great. So for me, I, you know, when I think back on when I first started, I, I don't know if I want to use the word career, but when I started on this path of being in digital mental health and doing research and getting clinical training and all of that stuff, I think it's so easy. And this maybe goes back to my first comment too, uh, on the, on the small change. It's so easy to like get in a place where we feel like we have to grind. Like I just have to like grind my way through this. I have to push and push and push. Um, and if there's anything that having spent more time at Hero Journey Club has taught me is that a little bit of fun can go a long way in getting through the grind. <laughs> um, and it's okay. It's okay to have fun. You can you can work hard and accomplish a lot and also have fun at the same time. Um, and I hope that, uh, that that's the experience that our journeyers have, not just in their groups, but that that's something they take with them into the rest of their lives of I did meaningful work that was good for me and it was fun. And how can I do more of that in my life? I think that would be a nice, at least for me, that's something I wish I had had 15 years ago to kind of just shift my mind in that way. The little fun's okay. Hmm. That's, that's a wonderful influence to both of you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. One more time. How do people find you guys? Brian? Yeah, uh, you can find us on our website at www.herojourneyclub.com uh, and learn more about the program there. That's great. Folks, check it out. It's going to be fun. All right, we will see you all next week at the Dr. Joe Show. Thanks, everybody. Bye, Mark. Bye, Tom. Stretch the kindness, brush with madness. Is it sadness or just a show? Then go, 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 go. 